Good evening. This is Milton Rosenberg. Welcome again to <coughs> Extension 720. We're popping around from studio to studio. <coughs> the uh, the uh, working out cruise is working out, more or less, I guess. Those who've been listening for the last two nights know about some of the troubles we've encountered while on the air. But right now, we're about to begin only half an hour uh, later than our usual start time. And I should tell you that we are tonight talking about uh, a topic that could easily take a year's close seminar discussion. We're talking about the Jews and the Christians in terms of what they think about God, indeed what their theologians have uh, conjectured about the nature of God, the nature of the human relation to God, ultimate issues concerning final things, eschatology, concerning for that matter, the relations between and the uh, the necessary relationship between the two great bodies of um, that Abrahamic tradition, that is the Jews and the Christians. We're not addressing the question of the third uh, member of the Abrahamic group of religions, namely Islam, though we've talked a good deal about Islam in recent years on this program. My guests, and I'll introduce them more fully, uh, introduce them by name once we begin, are uh, a Jewish a theologian and rabbi, a, a, a an evangelical uh, uh, ordained minister who is also interested in issues of theology, and a Protestant uh, minister interested in and teaching mainline uh, Protestant theology. So, the Jews and the Christians, their conceptions of God and what God requires of them and how they're getting along, and whether the Judeo-Christian creed, which is so heavily advertised and so frequently referenced, is truly there or is something of a PR operation worked up only in modern years for other reasons. All of that uh, under discussion when we commence right after the update on this evening's news from Brandon Campbell. It's Extension 720 with Milt Rosenberg from the Allstate Studios in Chicago on 720 WGN. Christians and Jews and how they conceive of God and what God requires of them and what they require of one another, and are they really bound together in one great uh, religious identity, or is that something of a modern fiction serving social purposes but not necessarily uh, reflective of uh, God's intention, if God is there at all? My three guests are, all of them, interested in theology and have made contributions in the theological literature. They are. Victor Merrillman, who is a professor of Jewish studies at Purdue College and is a, an ordained rabbi and led various congregations for many years. Sung Chan Ra uh, is professor of church growth and evangelism at North Park Theological Seminary. And he is, of course, uh, the name would suggest, uh, Korean by background, but indeed uh, a, a member of the Swedish Evangelical Church, which is still more or less the controlling uh, body uh, for uh, Lake Park Seminary. Uh, Kevin Hector is professor of theology and the philosophy of religion at the Divinity School of the University of Chicago. Gentlemen, the first question in theology really is, would you agree, does God exist? Um, and many have put in a lot of effort in developing proof of the inevitable truth of the existence of God. What, what proof, I assume all three of you assume God is there. Uh, what then, Sung Chan Ra, is for you uh, the best and the most effective proof? Well, I think um, when I reflect upon it as a, as first as a pastor and as a teacher, um, I look at experience as um, an important element of my faith. Um, so there is a text that attests to that, the scriptures that we all look towards as Christians. Uh, but there is also the experience of living a life that we find ourselves in the midst of questions and inquiries that require something much greater than us. Um, so I, I don't put everything into my experience, but I recognize the power and importance of one's experience um, of God, in God, through God. Um, and I think as a, as, as a pastor, I saw that. And as a teacher, I see that as well, uh, that our experiences are not to be neglected. <laughs> our experiences are not to be brushed aside, but to be recognized as an important part of our pursuit of God. But some theologians have actually addressed the question and have said we can prove the reality of God. Uh, what, what are the standard Christian versions of that proof? Uh, the canonical form would be the five ways from Thomas Aquinas. Uh, 
the cosmological proof, the teleological proof, the moral proof, and so on, uh, as well as the so-called ontological proof of Anselm, which Thomas Aquinas rejected. Uh, those would be the standard <coughs> proofs of God. Anselm's proof is great fun because it is great. He fun. Uh, says uh, God has to be defined as the most perfected being on all possible dimensions, mm-hmm. and one of them, of course, one of those dimensions of being is reality. Mm-hmm. God is, uh, and uh, and if you find God is perfected on all those dimensions, then obviously He's real rather than unreal. Mm-hmm. Unreal would be being less perfect than real. That's right. What's wrong with that? Well, Immanuel Kant is at least taken to have the strongest refutation of that, which is that existence isn't a property of the same sort as all of the other perfections. That mm-hmm. 100 failures, as Kant said, or 100 dollars is uh, just is, is is just as much money whether or not it actually exists, yeah. right? And so uh, it's it's a category mistake to think that existence is a perfection. Victor Merrillman, do our folks worry about this, about proving the existence of God? Traditionally, uh, we uh, assume that God exists. It, it's a matter of faith. Uh, Jews uh, have uh, traditionally, until modern times practically, had little use for uh, philosophy or theology. Basically, it was a religion based on deeds. As I've been reading in preparation for today, in fact, I've run across some people, some encyclopedia articles, uh, which assert, somewhat to my surprise, that theology is a Christian enterprise. For real Jews, there is no theology because God remains a mystery and remains unknowable. Well, there there are Jewish theologians. There are, of course. Some in medieval times, but not many. Uh, through the impact of Western civilization, the Jews have become theologians as well. So there are Jewish theologians. So in this, they are imitating, or at least they're influenced by their Christian influenced, brothers. Influenced, yes. I would say uh, quite interesting. Yeah. One of the interesting questions in theology, or at least in practical theology, or at least in church doctrine and in uh, rabbinical doctrine, is uh, how we conceive of our relations with those others. That is, the Jews and the Christians in relation to one another. What does it mean? Uh, what reality is there in the contemporary common usage of the, quote, Judeo-Christian tradition? Is that, does it have real pertinence and does it have real referentiality? Well, you said something interesting earlier. Is it just a PR game? Yeah. It sounds wonderful that Jews and Christians should get along. Um, Is that a reality? Um, I think um, Christians have a a perception that uh, we've inherited and certainly owe an incredible debt uh, to the Jewish tradition and history uh, because it forms such an important uh, part of our theology. Um, I think that's, in theory, that is a wonderful pursuit. Um, I struggle, though, with does that really live into our reality? Um, does a local church pastor, uh, does a typical church-going Christian uh, have any Jewish friends, have any intersection or interaction with anybody outside of Christianity? Um, so I think, I think there is some concern I would raise with, along with you that um, in theory it sounds wonderful. Uh, in practice, I'm just not sure we see it as much as we should or would like to see it. I think that uh, we are uh, in the field of morals, ethics, uh, there is a commonality because it's all based in what we call the Jewish Bible or the Old Testament. Uh, but otherwise, uh, there is a strong separation in, in certain beliefs. There are uh, – Though we we believe in the one God and and ma- many things are we we hold in common, there are uh, <coughs> profound differences in in our uh, grasp of theology and and the way of life. As Here well. is the voice of a very well known Christian, indeed the uh, the leader of the Protestant Reformation, if any such single person can be so designated, namely Martin Luther, who says of the Jews, they are condemned to blaspheme, curse, and vilify God himself and all that is God's for their eternal damnation. Uh, The princes must act like a good physician who, when gangrene has set, uh, proceeds without mercy to cut, saw, and burn flesh, veins, bone, and marrow. Such a procedure must also be followed in this instance. Burn down their synagogues. 
forbid all that I enumerated earlier, force them to work and deal harshly with them, as Moses did in the wilderness, slaying 3,000 lest the whole people perish. It would be wrong to be merciful and uh, condemn them in their conduct. If this does not help, we must drive them out like mad dogs, so that we do not become partakers of their abominable blasphemy and all their other vices, and thus merit God's wrath and be dabbed with them. I have done my duty. Now let everyone see to his. I am exonerated. Uh, he's done his duty in naming the Jews for what they are. Uh, that's a pretty heavy burden for, even I should think, for modern Lutheranism. Nobody here is a Lutheran, but still. Uh, Interestingly, Luther, among the duties he has in mind there, is Luther takes himself to be calling the Jewish people back to the or, covenant. Sure. Uh, and so it's partly in virtue of his having a sort of hope for bringing the Jewish people into the fold, so to speak, that he then becomes just so upset, and it's painful to hear those words, but he becomes so painfully ups uh, so upset about the fact that they refuse, and then he loses his temper. Whereas supersessionist theologians in the modern era, they don't have any concern with bringing the Jews into the fold because they don't think the Jews belong there anyway, but then they tend to be, in some respects at least, more tolerant. Well, here another, <clears throat> here another voice, a modern major uh, Christian voice, namely uh, Joseph Ratzinger, now, of course, uh, Pope Benedict XVI, who says, Our Christian conviction is that Christ is also the Messiah of Israel. Certainly it is in the hands of God how and when the unification of Jews and Christians into the people of God will take place. So ultimately the Jews have to come to Jesus, he is saying. Yes, th this is one of the basic differences between Judaism and Christianity. Uh, these, are, these are broad strokes. Uh, in uh, in uh, Judaism, uh, in our eschatology, we have, quoting the uh, ancient texts, the, uh, the Tosefta and the Mishnah uh, from the first and second centuries, uh, we say every human being has a place in the world to come. Uh, e even the righteous among the nations. So you don't have to be Jewish to, in, to, to uh, inherit the world to come, which is not true in, in Christianity. Well, Christ so. Christians work, <clears throat> some Christians do, uh, to convert Jews to Christianity. Mm -hmm. Jews, as far as I know, are, are busy when it comes to conversion missions only to convert less religious Jews into more religious Jews. That's what uh, the Chabad movement is about, for example. That's right. But uh, Jews don't work to convert Christians to Not Judaism, Not now, but in, in, in antiquity, yeah, they did. They were uh, uh, reaching out to others to, to be followers of— In the Roman of, Empire. Yes. And, yes. And those times. And before, too. Yes. Yeah. Well, yes, well, Judaism once, of course, was a major religion of uh, the Mediterranean world, possibly the single largest, was it not? Yeah, well, it was the first uh, monotheistic religion, yeah. and as, as such, it uh, uh, it sought to uh, to uh, bring in converts mm. into the fold. I'm so uh, glad you mentioned monotheism. <clears throat> I'm late already, and this is a rather disordered night for staying on schedule, and we have to stop for some commercials in a moment. But a very interesting argument within Christianity itself is whether God is triune. Uh, has three aspects, uh, and one of them at least is a person, maybe two are persons, and the third is the Holy Spirit, whatever that is, uh, uh, or whether somehow, <coughs> as some Protestant uh, denominations insist, you can put that aside and God should just be conceived as a unity. Unitarianism in this country, in its original formulation, was seriously theological. I think it now, as I was saying earlier, the off the air, quoting this famous joke, now the Unitarians have only one belief, namely, quote, there is at the most one God. But indeed, they are in some ways an agnostic sect, uh, or it might be so argued. But when it comes to serious, uh, serious characterization of the Godhead, uh, does the difference between the Christians and the Jews persist? And if so, what can be done about it intellectually 
what's to be done about it as we try to dialogue with one another and try and does that difference if there is a difference negate the notion that there is a judeo-christian tradition which lasts and is eternal uh, a few questions for us to address if you're willing after we pause for these words extension 720 with milt rosenberg on 720 wgn a quick reintroduction of our guests and uh, directly on to the question of the nature of God. Victor Merrillman uh, is a rabbi, is professor of Jewish studies at Spurtis College these days. Sung Chan Ra uh, is professor uh, at, uh, is uh, indeed a, um, a minister and is uh, and evangelical by general uh, religious category and teaches at North Park Theological Seminary. Kevin Hector is professor of theology and philosophy of religion at the University of Chicago's Divinity School. Well, I just put a, a major question on the table, the nature of God, the difference between the Christian and the Jewish conception. Of course, when it comes to the Christian conception, we have to go over a broad spectrum of different Christianities, I suppose. That's right. And a history that includes quite a bit of variety and the doctrine of the Trinity, which is one of the things you led us into the break with has enormous variety within that doctrine. And one of the things we would need to talk about then is what we mean by the doctrine of the Trinity. So, for instance, in 20th century Christian theology, there was a sort of renaissance of Trinitarian thinking, but it was explicitly focused on the covenant nature of God and the understanding that God (laughs) is, in essence, the covenant God and that— What does that mean, the covenant God? Uh, the God who elects, the God who says to Abraham, I will be your God and you will be my people down through the generations, and sees that as God's fundamental identity and that identity as fundamentally culminating, definitively so, in Jesus the Israelite, uh, Jesus the, the Jew, Jesus the Christ. And, and sees God as so wholly identified with this Jesus that uh, this Jesus can be seen to be internal to God's identity. That's sort of abstract language, but it's a, it's a much more, if you'll allow it, a much more Jewish understanding of who God is than an abstract notion of God being somehow three and one. Uh, there's a, a more historical Jewish-Israelite context for the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, the Catholic uh, doctrine concerning the triune God is that God is three in one, and Jesus is one of the three. Uh, is That's right, but the question is whether to understand Jesus's relationship to God in terms of a prior conception of three in oneness, or to think that three in oneness is comes later on in the story, so to speak, and that it's as understanding God in light of the covenant with Israel and the relationship that God has with Jesus, this Jewish person, that should be used to understand who God is, and the three-in-one stuff is late coming with respect to how how one understands God. Uh, How late? That's an interesting question. You're talking about the Catholic, (laughs) in the Catholic tradition. I'm talking about well. There are there's variety within the Catholic tradition as to well. To be sure, uh, within the Catholic tradition, though, in recent Catholic theology, there's been a strong movement toward thinking of uh, three in oneness as something that should be understood in in light of who God is in the covenant with us, rather than trying to make the three in oneness the central mystery. What do we have in the evangelical realm of Christian thought, Christian belief, and theology? I think evangelicals would clearly identify as Trinitarian. Now, what that means to many evangelicals is probably a little bit more up for debate. Um, I think that when we start talking about what is the distinction between a Trinitarian understanding and uh, what might be a, 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 a Jewish understanding of, of the nature of God, um, I think most will see that there are some clear distinctions and distinctives. Um, how we understand Jesus, how we understand the role of the Holy Spirit. Um, Those things, I think we can come to some kind of um, markers and say, yeah, there there seems to be some boundaries there. There seems to be some distinctions there. Um, I think, though, we shouldn't be afraid, though, of having those conversations. Um, Is the goal of Judeo-Christian conversation and dialogue, or is the goal of any interfaith dialogue, um, is it coming to kind of um, a muddy middle? 
where we all can agree on one or two things that, okay, we can come to this understanding? Or is it to maybe to delineate our differences more clearly and well, to be able to make that decision? Isn't it true that we put sacred story aside, hmm. basically, because clearly Jews do not uh, participate in uh, full acceptance of or any acceptance of the sacred story, which is central to Christianity, namely Jesus as the redemptive uh, representation of God on who's come to earth and is crucified and is resurrected. The resurrection is the crucial item of faith, mm-hmm. it seems to me, in all serious Christianity. Uh, and Jews stay away from that, uh, though Christians don't have to stay away from Old Testament Judaism, at least the Old Testament story, uh, though most of them don't pay much attention to it anymore, it seems to me, in real practice. It, that varies from denomination to denomination. But uh, coming to Victor Merrillman, what are we, and I speak as a secular Jew and you're the rabbi, uh, what, uh, how do we in this latter day uh, respond to the Trinitarian kind of Christianity that we've just been talking about? It's, a, it's an issue. In, uh, it's, for many Jews, it's difficult to comprehend the Trinity. But uh, given the fact that uh, people say it's a oneness in three, or three in one, uh, as monotheistic religions, descendants of the uh, covenant with Abraham, there is a lot of room for dialogue. Uh, Of course, Jews do not believe that Jesus uh, is the Messiah uh, that we derive from Scripture, since uh, the the era of peace and and harmony has not ensued, uh, we we have that difference. We had one Messiah of our own, but he disappointed us. <laughs> well, many. I have in mind Shabbat Shitzvi, Tzvi and and Jacob Frank and others yeah. as well. But uh, uh, these were false messiahs, though they they had their followers, and some even after their. They converted either to Islam or to Christianity, uh, continued to uh, to believe that they were the real uh, Messiah. But mainstream Judaism does not believe in that. But I, I, I want to uh, uh, highlight the fact that dialogue is still a, a, a very important uh, aspect of, uh, of of life. And I've be, I've participated as as I know all. In, in this panel, in in uh, dialogue, interfaith dialogue, and uh, it's always productive when uh, neither one wants to convert the other, and we can fight about uh, our differences, and also uh, mention our commonalities. But it's very important to define the differences. I think that's the most productive dialogue when you can approach each other and tell us tell each other the way we feel differently or believe differently from each other. There are sometimes still persisting misunderstandings which really are rather astonishing. Mm -hmm. There's one which has turned up only recently in Germany of all places and in the federal court in in, uh, in Cologne in Cologne and we might talk about that just a bit when we return from an update on the news for that do the WGN newsroom Extension 720 with Milt Rosenberg on 720 WGN. And we return to conversation about Christians and Jews, their theologies, and for that matter, their attitudes toward one another as, uh, as participants in the great central tradition of the Judeo-Christian religious orientation, if indeed it is a persisting and true orientation. My guests are Victor Merrillman, who is a rabbi, uh, Sung Chan Ra, who is an ordained minister, an evangelical. Kevin Hector, who is not an ordained minister, but is very much uh, a Protestant theologian, mainline Protestantism, one might say, at the University of Chicago Divinity School. Uh, Robbie George is a friend of ours. He's a well-known Catholic layman and indeed a very significant uh, political theorist at Princeton University. And he sent me this just today in response to a query. Um, The recent development in Germany, against which we Christians should loudly raise our voices, is described by David Goldman in an article published on June 26th. And he says, The district court of the federal state of Cologne ruled that circumcision of children for religious reasons at the instruction of parents constituted the infliction of bodily harm and therefore was a punishable offense. That's a quote from the judge's uh, ruling 
uh, in Cologne just a few just a week ago. And then he goes on to say, of course, for observant Jews, circumcision of male children is not optional. It is required as a matter of Jewish law. To prohibit it is, in effect, to forbid Jews from being Jews. And then this same author, David Goldman, uh, quotes from a letter he sent to two of those German judges. And in it he says, Not even the Nazis thought of banning circumcision as a way of uprooting Jewish life in Germany. If your decree withstands a constitutional challenge, Germany, once again, will be Judenrein. And he goes on to say, The neo-pagan illusions of National Socialism have been crushed, although they lurk at the fringes of German politics. Despite their defeat, the National Socialists may have succeeded in extirpating the presence of the divine in German life. No action by responsible public officials since the end of the war has advanced their cause, meaning the cause of the Nazis, really, as forcefully as the evil decree that you have promulgated. Um, Is this concern, as expressed by this reporter and uh, activist uh, Jewish defender, I guess. Uh, is it, Victor Merrillman, a legitimate complaint, a legitimate concern? It is, but it is localized. Uh, as far as I understand, uh, Jews can go f- to a different city and circumcise their children at this point. Uh, but it, it is uh, an offense to, to Jewish pride and to Jewish life. And not only to Jews, but also to Muslims. Which to Muslims, are, certainly. And they're, which are and they're, a, a substantial portion of the European community nowadays. And they're more frequent on the ground, uh, even in Cologne, than, they, than are the Jews, I'm sure. Yeah. Now, uh, Jews circumcise their children at the age of eight days. For Muslims, it's at a much later date. Mm-hmm. Uh, I understand it may be around 12 years of age. So there might be a consent of, of the individual involved. But not from an eight-day-old infant, to be right, sure. Right, Something similar was attempted by the city council, I guess, of San Francisco. That's right. Uh, uh, Jews, at least this one Jew who's talking right now, have certain sensitivities with our, which may be vestigial, but go back to the Holocaust, of course, in which many of us lost a, a wide, uh, many, many members of our European families. And uh, that's true for me. It's undoubtedly true for Victor Merrill, right. isn't it? Right. It, it, it is. It, it, uh, it goes uh, against our sense of uh, freedom of religion, which is uh, so important in this country. So I'm astounded that in San Francisco there is talk about this. We'll see how it develops. But I'm sure that pressures from from other groups, not only Jews or Muslims, mm-hmm. but uh, other peoples who advocate the freedom of religion uh, will uh, will put pressure, and we'll see what what comes. And of out course, of there it. there is another very oppressive reality <clears throat> that there are some groups who remain violently, literally violently, and certainly uh, full of verbal violence against Jews, and preach that almost fully. And some of them wrap themselves in the cross. There are. Certain anti-Semitic movements, they're neo-Nazi in style, but they're led by people who call themselves Christian pastors. Well, that is an unfortunate reality. Uh, it's a hard and that happens reality. in this country. It does. It happens not just in this country, but in, other, in Europe as well. Yeah. Um, I think, I think the, 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 the struggle with that is um, how much did really understand their own faith. Uh, they, they can proclaim themselves as Christian, uh, but are not embodying and living um, the characteristics of Christ. Um, so I, I think, you know, obviously there's a, there's a really rough history here. Um, we can go back to Germany, uh, Nazi Germany, and say, yeah, there was some real just horrible stuff that occurred with German Christians who advocated for Nazism, who advocated for um, for the, the atrocities that the, the, the history witnessed. Um, I think when we start talking about what does it mean in a situation like Cologne or a situation like San Francisco, is, is, there, is that the place of common ground for Jews, Christians, Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, uh, in religious freedom, in, uh, in the proper application of ethics? Um, what does it mean to advocate for one another as people of faith rather than becoming oppressors of one another? So, you know, yes, we're going to find these extreme examples of those who wrap themselves in the cross and spew a particular brand of hate. Uh, but is there a place where those of us who are uh, who want to live into 
um, the the teachings of Jesus, who want to live into the teachings of the Old Testament, uh, to be able to stand with one another. And that, to me, is a question of ethics, of, of, a, of a public expression of faith that affirms one another rather than tears each other down. Further thoughts on this matter? Kevin Hector. I, I concur with much of what you've been saying. I mean, it strikes me that this is an instance uh, – Theologians as well as political theorists and social theorists and so forth have uh, lately been trying to analyze the theologies implicit in uh, putatively secular political ideologies and arrangements and so forth. Uh, Carl Schmitt himself, a Nazi, but uh, inaugurated a field called political theology which is looking at the ways in which secular liberal states, secular liberal governments have theologies implicit in them and that unless we unearth these theological commitments and see them for what they are, we will be guilty of a certain sort of dogmatic commitment to them that will express itself in opposition to particular religions that don't cloak themselves with the mantle of secularism. A socio-psychological question has been around for a long, long time regarding religion, and it's simply, uh, are people who are truly religious, who are communicants of one or another of the faiths and practice it, uh, are they, in any sense, by ethical evaluation, are they better people than people who are not religious? Do we have any evidence at all that uh, it's that people do less harm to other humans if they are in, uh, or show less contempt for others, do impose less strain on other people if they are uh, simply and truly religious, whether Christian, Jewish, Muslim, Buddhist, Hindu, what have you. A, a true religious person, and I speak uh, not only as a, I speak as a Jew, but I think other religious persuasions as well, we have, which have a, uh, a strong moral component, influence the individual. So uh, there may be secular people who are totally ethical, good people, but uh, they may be influenced by the religious morals as well. When the first crusade, as proclaimed by Peter the Hermit, reached uh, Constantinople, the first thing the crusaders did was found all the Jews, and there were lots of Jews in Constantinople, uh, and killed them. Well, they did that before reaching Constantinople in the uh, Rhineland. As, as they worked their way uh, through, yeah, yes. In, in the Rhineland, yeah. they, they, uh, they massacred Jewish communities that were very important in those days. Yeah. Drove those Jewish so, communities east to uh, where the it, king of Poland welcomed them, sort of. Yeah, and many, but many were massacred. To be totally. sure, and we know lots. We know, and, and Protestants and Catholics killed one another in France uh, for just about a century. Well, and I want to go back to the original question you were asking about yeah. socio the sociological question. Um, so Putnam and Campbell's work on American Grace, they talk about is there a positive value to religion mm -hmm. in community, and they seem to come to that conclusion. Um, is there something about faith that um, changes one's participation in society? Um, and one of the factors they seem to indicate is is the presence of community, that there's something about being in community, whether that's a religious community or some other form of community, that seems to trigger or, or, um, or perpetuate uh, some kind of good civic involvement. Um, the practice of being in community, the the idea of, of being with neighbors in a particular worship service. Yeah. So is there a value there? And that might not just be specific faiths, but all faiths of some kind that promote community offers an opportunity for us mm -hmm. to experience that <coughs> and then become better citizens. That touches on a very interesting question in the sociology of religion. The founding document in the modern sociology of religion is probably Durkheim's book, uh, Les formes élémentaires de la vie religieuse, the elementary forms of the religious life. And you remember that what Durkheim does, without going through all of the, uh, the detail of his analysis, though it harkens back to primitive uh, uh, Australian uh, religion in the bush, <coughs> uh, but what he comes to, the conclusion he comes to is that what is worshipped uh, in primitive religion, uh, which is totemic in nature, down to contemporary Christianity and Judaism, says 
uh, Durkheim, and he's a Jew himself, an Alsatian Jew in Paris uh, at, in, at the turn into the 20th century. Uh, what is finally truly being worshipped in all of our religions is the uh, community itself, is commonality, is uh, <clears throat> the, uh, uh, our dependence upon one another and the mystery and the sense of the superiority and the, uh, the, uh, the looming presence of the force of community. That's what we personify in our image of God. It's a, a strange or an interesting idea, and I don't mean to urge it upon you as the truth, but um, certainly community is central to, to actual religious life. And that's why when somebody tells you, well, I'm not really religious, but I'm spiritual, and that turns out to doing yoga exercises at home and reciting a mantra, you get a sense that's not religion because it doesn't involve other people. Indeed, there is a saying from the, uh, from the shtetl, from the Jewish East European culture, uh, that, um, uh, how does it go? I, w- I wonder, Victor, if you know. Uh, Life is with people, I think. Is yeah. Life Life is Yiddish, people, probably. It was a book by, written by a sociology, I for, a sociologist, I just forget his name, yeah. about 40, 45 about years ago. About the shtetl life. Right. About shtetl culture. Right. But it is not only the shtetl, it is rooted in, in, in the Jewish tradition. For example, there is this concept that God, the, the, uh, the uh, holiness of God is found in a minion. A minion is a quorum mm-hmm. of Jews, yeah. a minimum of 10. Used to be 10 males. Some traditions include females today. Others do not. Do not. But God is found in community. And also uh, uh, you mentioned the, the, the fact that a, a person can be spiritual, but mm-hmm. if that person is not motivated to to bring his inspiration or her inspiration into community life and helping others, then <clears throat> it is it is wasted. So uh, there is the the spiritual combined with the practical, and uh, I think that is one of the strong points of religion. Well motivated. And speaking of the practical, I'm five minutes late for a round of commercials. <laughs> we'll pause for those, and then directly back to Victor Merrillman, uh, Sung Chan Ra, and Kevin Hector. Though I should add instantly that we're opening the phone lines. And after the uh, news on the half hour, we will uh, go to the phones. Any question you want to raise, any comment you want to share, any religious experience that you want to contemplate or that you want to uh, uh, somehow report, do by all means get in there. The number, as ever, is 312-591-7200. 312-591-7200. Get your calls in right now. We will be with you shortly, and we look forward to your joining in the conversation. And right now to uh, the uh, round of commercials that is waiting. Extension 720 with Milt Rosenberg on 720 WGN. And gentlemen, we have about five minutes before we pause for or, uh, for an update on the news and then on to the phones. Uh, again, to listeners, I see some lines are now taken, but some are still available. 312-591-7200. Any co- contribution you want to make, including, of course, any question you want to raise. I've got the ultimate question. And we have four minutes to dispose of it. Uh, with regard to theology and with regard to personal belief, uh, eschatology, what is to be expected in terms of final things? Uh, is there an end to the human story? And what is God's role in that end? Uh, relating to that, there is the, uh, the minor question of, is there an afterlife? And I think I'll once again seek first for the Jewish view on these matters. Victor Merrillman. Is with the Jews speak about the world to come and the revival of the dead, uh, but there are different interpretations uh, of what this this means. There's nothing canonical. There's nothing that all Orthodox Jews say would uh, would believe about that. Well, if you took the uh, the thirteen principles of Maimonides, it's included there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Though there is some controversy whether he was coerced to do to include it or not. Uh, but it's in the books uh, now. Some people think uh, that there is nothing after this life, as the Sadducees of antiquity mm-hmm. thought. Uh, the Pharisees, on the other hand, thought that there is a world to come, a revival. Uh, some people even in, in today's world, and they're not divided along orthodox, <coughs> conservative, or reform. Some, say, some speak in terms of revival, 
bodily as well as spiritually, and others only spiritual yeah. revival. So, Chan, am I right that in the evangelical tradition, and this holds across many evangelical denominations, uh, the picture of ultimate things is essentially drawn from the book of Revelation? Well, I, would, I wouldn't say that. I would say that um, there are certain segments of Christianity that would uh, maybe overemphasize Revelation, um, certainly in, in kind of the political, geopolitical, and international kind of application of it. Um, I do think there is a lot of overlap in, the, in our traditions with the Jewish tradition about the afterlife, uh, but certainly because the central narrative of Jesus is resurrection. The central narrative is um, his conquering over death, that that becomes an important part of But typically the in Christianity, well. lots of ordinary Christians, I think, are confused. They think that their doctrine tells them that after they die, they're going to go to some uh, immediate post-mortal destination, whether it's heaven or hell. Uh, but that isn't really the case. In many, Christian, many Christianities, there's a long, long wait until the ultimate day of judgment. Uh, well, there, again, there are different traditions on this. Yeah. Um, Catholic traditions would have a different perspective, uh, and evangelical traditions would have, even within evangelicalism, there will be different traditions as well. Um, I think, you know, there, that, that's, that's a mystery, right? I mean, I mean how, how certain can we be? We can go to the text. We can go to the teachings of Jesus. We can go to a book like Revelation and draw inferences and draw yeah. concepts. And I think the larger idea is that there is something beyond this world, that there is something beyond the life that we live in this moment. Can one characterize mainsta- mainstream Protestant tradition on this, or is it also extremely variable? It is extremely variable. So there are, I mean, there are people who identify as Christians who don't believe, they think that once they die, they die. That's it. That's it. There are other (laughs) mainline Christians who believe in a resurrection of the body and a life in the world to come, and they believe in a new heavens and a new earth, a renewal of creation. Ecological theology has invested in a sense of the renewal of the earth and a sense that that involves a commitment even now to be in on the right side of things, so to speak, in the renewal of the earth. And then and there's everything in between. Things in between or far out or otherwise, very otherwise, is Mormon theology concerning the afterlife. I won't try to get into that right now, but it indeed uh, gives you some tremendous promises if you're a good Mormon. Uh, right now, I'm going to be a good talk show host, or try to be, <laughs> as we pause to go uh, to the... A newsroom in just a moment. But first, again, to repeat, we're going directly to the phones after the update on the news. So by all means, get your calls in right now at 591-7200, 591-7200. And if you want to reach us via email, that for our Internet listeners at some greater distance, uh, by all means, you can do that. The email address, extension720 at WGNRadio.com. And to the WGN Newsroom and Brandon Campbell. It's Extension 720 with Milt Rosenberg from the Allstate Studios in Chicago on 720 WGN. And a quick reintroduction of our guests and directly to the phones. Those guests are Sung Shan Ra, who is a theologian and represents evangelical Christianity in this conversation tonight. Kevin Hector represents mainstream Protestantism. Victor Merleman is a rabbi and therefore apparently represents Judaism. 312 591 7200. I've got some lines still available, so to all of my friends, if you've got anything interesting to ask or to say, get in there right away. We're talking about the Judeo-Christian tradition in uh, religious life. In some aspects, there are many aspects we haven't yet adverted to. 312-591-7200, and the first caller is Michael. Good evening. Uh, Hello? Yes, sir. Yes, very interesting show. I have uh, two rhetorical questions which I'd answer quickly and ask your panel to comment. Uh, the first is, who is God, and what is his name? Well, he is who he says he is, and he's revealed himself to his people Israel uh, by his uh, history of action with them and by the oracles of God which were delivered to them. And his name is Yeshua, because in Isaiah 12, as the Lord is salvation, and in Acts chapter 9, Saul of Tarsus, looking up to heaven, says, Who are you, Lord? He said, I'm Yeshua, who you persecute. So the notion that there's three persons is fallacious because the first and greatest commandment is Shemai Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. Uh, Hero Israel, the Lord is God, the Lord is one. Mm-hmm. He's one. And Yeshua is the Messiah, God himself, manifest in the flesh, who created all things, <coughs> and in the flesh redeemed humanity to himself. In the new and everlasting covenant. Indulge me if I test out a. Uh, by his spirit. Hold. Uh, indulge me if I test out a, a hunch. Are you a messianic Jew? 
Uh, no, sir. I'm one that's Pentecostal. And You're we Pentecostal. love the Jewish people. Well, of course. Uh, let's get some response. And I think that goes properly to Victor Merriman. Well, uh, we think of God as creator. And uh, uh, the name of God is Adonai or Elohim or other names that the Jewish tradition has. Uh, the uh, uh, the Jewish belief is that uh, God as creator is uh, imminent but also uh, uh, out there. Uh, the fact that uh, God uh, has made a covenant with the people and with Abraham and the people Israel after that uh, has also partnered with human beings in order to complete the process of creation. So uh, God is not a creator, a solo creator, but in a way uh, is a partner with human beings in the process of creation. Isn't it true that in the Kabbalistic tradition, or at least in Kabbalah, as maybe Jacob Luria, maybe some other, that uh, it is revealed or it is asserted there are a thousand names for God? Yes, there are, there are multiple names of God. and uh, But that God himself has chosen a thousand names is the concept. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, whether it's a thousand, I don't know the exact <laughs> number, but there are many our, numbers. Our thanks to the caller. And <clears throat> we go on to the next. That is Helen. He has many names, but there's one name above all. We, we appreciate your, you, your views thank on you. that, sir. And we thank you for the call. Thank you, sir. And we go next to Helen. Uh, good. Uh, as more and more Christians leave Israel... Will evangelicals continue to have an interest in the survival of the country? As more and more uh, Christians leave, will the evangelicals in this country still have an interest uh-huh. in what happens in Israel? Is it a fact that Christians are leaving Israel? I believe they are. They've been leaving for a long time. They feel that they're outsiders there. I don't know of any reports to that effect or any data to that effect. My sense, I don't know if I, I don't know if this is more than a hunch, but my sense is that for many evangelicals at least, their commitment to Israel is not in fact tied to the presence of Christians there. It's rather tied to a sense of uh, Israel's place in God's plan for the redemption of humanity, such that it's it's historic Israel, that is the the commitment, not the Jewish people in Israel. Yeah, I would concur. I think that's part of the confusion. Um, and I don't know about this report. I don't I don't know what actually she's referring to here. Um, but it's not it's not specific to that. I think there it's a very complex relationship. I mean, there's kind of a broad spectrum within evangelicalism, uh, but it's not tied into the presence of Christians in a particular location. It is some of this historical, theological reflection on Jews as, as a chosen people, and that commitment is not necessarily based upon the presence of Christians in Israel. Our thanks to the caller, and uh, next, and directly to Mark, who joins us at WGN Radio. Good evening, sir. Good evening, and I, I'm able to hear you. You're able to hear me? Yes, indeed. Okay. Um, what I'll be telling you is about correlation, not causation. So I'll be saying that two things we need <laughs> without saying that either one made the other happen. Uh, Gordon Allport, I believe, was the researcher who came up with this, and he asked, I don't know how the survey was constructed, but he asked Christians about a number of parameters, we might say. One of them was how they viewed Jesus. Did they tend to view him according to his divinity? or more according to his humanity. And then the other thing he asked them was, how do, you, how do you practice forgiveness? Do you find it easy, or do you find it to be a real struggle? And he says that he found that Christians who stressed more the deity of Christ found forgiveness harder to practice, whereas Christians who put more stress on the humanity of Christ found that forgiveness was a more realistic possibility in their practice. And I, I bring this up in conjunction with your discussion earlier about does religion change the behavior or the character of people for the better? I thought, I thought this incarnational finding was rather interesting when I heard it. Well, interesting thoughts. Let's get some response. 
That's a, that's a great, great um, uh, insight in coming from this particular research. Um, I, I do think theology affects ethics. I, I think uh, theology and how we view God clearly influences us. And, I, and you're also touching on a pretty interesting topic in that many Christians um, don't quite understand the nature of Jesus as well. And, I, and um, is there an emphasis on deity versus an emphasis on <coughs> Jesus' humanity? Um, and that might just be a reflection of how a person thinks and how a person reflects upon that reality. Um, I just lost sound here. Um, and and so the question is, is it that that theological understanding that shapes a person's uh, concept of, of, um, of forgiveness? Or is there a, a tendency to, to emphasize Jesus' divinity or Jesus' humanity that – lends itself towards a particular view. Uh, I think, I think we're having some technical problems again. We've had them for the last two nights, and I've been waiting for the, uh, for the blow to descend tonight. I think it just has. At any rate, it's time for us to pause for some commercials. Right after, I say to our listeners that we've now got a number of lines available, and we look forward to additional calls. Uh, I call upon my friends to get in there quickly with interesting comments or useful questions as we broadly discuss or as we discuss broadly, the, uh, the uh, Judeo-Christian tradition, its origins, areas in which the two great traditions converge, areas in which they differentiate. 312-591-7200. And of course, email is also available for our distant listeners who are catching us on the internet. The email address, extension720 at wgnradio.com. With that, a quick round of commercials and then directly back. Extension 720 with Milt Rosenberg on 720 WGN. And we will go quickly back to the phones. I believe the next caller is Dan. Good evening. Are you there? Apparently not. And our producer has disappeared from the studio, so I don't know whether we are... Is that Dan? It's me. Please go ahead, sir. (laughs) Oh, well, thank you so much. I just want to start out by saying uh, thank you so much for... The many times that I've listened to this show and learned and been entertained, I just appreciate it so much. Well, I appreciate topic, your saying so. And the topic tonight is, you know, right in that same vein. I uh, have spent the last 30-plus years of my life exploring Christianity. I'm in my 50s with five kids. And one of the things that has always been something that has been profoundly uh, intriguing to me is why Jesus spoke of the kingdom of God. And even though I go to church every Sunday, I very rarely ever hear about the kingdom of God, but Jesus spoke so profoundly, it was his very first message was about the kingdom of God. He sent them out to talk about the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? Not a bad question at all. Yes, indeed, uh, Kevin Hector. What, by the way, is the kingdom of God? <laughs> a nice, easy question. Uh so it seems to me that, uh, at least in contemporary theology and especially contemporary biblical studies, the kingdom of God is understood as God's reign, especially God's reign over the anti-God powers, the powers of death, the power of sin, uh, the the power of the devil. And in particular, it's the, the eschatological, the in-breaking reign of the end times where God uh, is the, the, the Lord of, of all things and there aren't these competing powers. Hmm. Then I guess my follow-up would be, then why are we all talking about going to heaven when it says that the kingdom of God is here on earth and that Jesus is coming to return to the earth to establish the kingdom of God? Well, there is division among Christians about this, but uh, I think the, at least the plurality of contemporary theologians <laughs> and biblical scholars would say that uh, that the, the coming kingdom is a kingdom to be established in a renewed heavens and earth. And we need an answer from the evangelical position <laughs> as well, surely. Well, it's, a, it's actually interesting because in the scriptures you'll find, in the New Testament, you'll find the kingdom of God is described uh, not in the chronological order. It's coming, it's here, it's near. Uh, and if it were in the right order, as in it's coming, it's near, and it's here, that would make a lot of sense. But it doesn't. It's not. It's not presented that way. They're kind of all over the place, uh, mm. because the the characteristic of the kingdom is not 
uh, is not an earthly kind of a human understanding. And I think that's part of the problem of teaching on the kingdom from the church and by pastors because we, can, we confuse the kingdoms quite easily. And when we, when we hear kingdom language, it speaks mostly of kind of a governmental language when it actually is, is much broader than that. So I think the idea of a kingdom that is just here is insufficient. It's incomplete. You have to think of the kingdom as here, present, now, and not yet, which is kind of a common phrase in Christian theology about understanding the kingdom. My way of, uh, of adapting my own thinking to it is a kingdom of God mindset. I have a kingdom of God mindset. I believe that the kingdom of God is literal. I believe that the kingdom of God is physical, and I believe that the kingdom of God is eternal. And so to try and wrap my mind on that as best as I can, I'm not a theologian, but, you know, to wrap my mind, I've come up with the, you know, phrase to my other fellow believers that, you know, I have a kingdom of God mindset. I kind of try to dwell in that place. But again, thank you for a great show. Thank you, sir, for calling. And we go uh, to the email for a moment. Here's a very interesting contribution. Um, And I'm a little bit strange getting to it because of the odd layout of things here. But all the same, as I squint at the screen, what I discern is the following. I feel that the richness of Jewish tradition is mostly lost for the majority of Christians today. This may be a general comment, as it seems that Christians tend to be shallower uh, than in previous generations. Should Christianity in America focus on greater attainment of theology and tradition? greater comprehension, I should think, of theology and tradition. Let's turn to the two resident Christians again. Well, I think any theologian would say that Christians should learn more theology. That's job security. Uh, I mean, it strikes me that there has been in theology over the last half century or so, there's been an emphasis on recovering some of the richness of the Jewish tradition. Uh, you mentioned, I think, during a break, the, the Kabbalah tradition and some of the Lurianic traditions, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, Rabbi Merrillman, one of your professors, Abraham Heschel, he's been uh, recovered and had some prominence among some Christian theologians, at least. So, I mean, I think I think that there is a broad agreement with the email uh, on that score with respect to recovering some of that richness. Did you know that Rabbi Heschel's daughter is a, I think, historian of religion, basically, or of Judaism more particularly, teaches at Dartmouth, where I used to teach a long time ago. Uh, we've mentioned Kabbalah a few times. Uh, you, you know, undoubtedly, much more about it than I do, Victor. I know virtually nothing. Yeah. Kabbalah is uh, the name for Jewish mysticism. And the, there is a, a, a type of approach to Judaism that resurfaces in every generation or every era. We have the uh, early Hasidim or early pious people uh, in in (coughs) Talmudic times. We have medieval movements. We have uh, including Lurianic Kabbalah that started in the land of Israel. Lurianic was a particular person, Isaac Luria. Isaac Luria, yeah. And that's about the the, the 1500s. 15th, 1500s. Yeah. Uh, at the time, uh, uh, there was a big concentration of Kabbalists or Jewish mystics in the city of Safed in the Galilee, but they were elsewhere as well. In modern times, you have uh, Hasidism, modern Hasidism, that started in the middle of the 18th century mm-hmm. in uh, Eastern Europe by the Baal Shem Tov and the ramifications throughout Eastern Europe and now in America with uh, Satmar Hasidim or the Lubavitcher or Chabad Hasidim. So basically it is the mystic approach in Judaism. Should be In this country, when it comes to different variants of Judaism, there people generally know whether they're Jewish or not, that there are Orthodox, Conservative, and Reform. But within uh, those traditions, particularly within Orthodoxy, there are a number of different movements. And uh, the uh, Hasidism that you're talking about is orthodox, of course, but has some special features of its own. Yes. Yeah, the the, the f- main features are the mystic approach to, to life. Exactly. The uh, emphasis in, in prayer, but also in deeds and study. And a great emphasis on community. And community. Because the, Hasid, the Hasidim were organized in what were almost courts in the sense of royalty. That's uh, right. The rabbi holding more, more than 
the position merely of a teacher, but indeed yeah, somehow. Also holding, it's like a guru exactly. in, in the exactly. uh, Jewish community. And actually the the followers or his Hasidim will uh, uh, respond immediately to the demands of, of the leader. And the uh, leader of the Lubavitcher Hasidim for many years was Rabbi Schneerson. And it was expected that upon his death, or rather before his death, he might be revealed to be the Messiah. Well, he, did, he did not so reveal himself. There are, there are those who believe that he is the Messiah, and uh, there are those who, who do not. So yeah. you'd find, if you go to Israel, you'd see uh, uh, <coughs> announcements throughout the country that the Messiah has arrived, and they still believe that he is so. And there are those who, the detractors of that position, who say, uh, no, he's not the Messiah. And if you believe that he is the Messiah, then it's a different religion. But this whole group of Hasidim represent only, in this country, a very small proportion of the total Jewish population. That's right. Possibly <laughs> not more than 1% or 1% uh, of the um, population. Yes, maybe a little more, because they... They proliferate. They yeah, reproduce they, themselves They tend to proselytize right. for their own. Gentlemen, we are just about out of time. I thank you most sincerely for joining us tonight. Our guests have been Victor Merrillman, professor of Jewish studies at Spertus, and, of course, uh, an ordained rabbi of, of great significance, Sung Chan Ra, who is an ordained evangelical pastor and teaches uh, at North Park Theological Seminary here in Chicago. Kevin Hector, who is more or less representative of mainstream Protestantism and teaches theology and other subjects at the Divinity School of the University of Chicago, where lots of great theologians come to call and come to visit. A few of them have wound up on this program, a memorable night with Hans Kung many years ago. Uh, and with that, we come to truly just about the end of the available time. We will be here tomorrow night at July 4th, a great and surprising guest, uh, so join us by all means at 10 tomorrow when you're done with your July 4th celebrations. Until then, a most cordial good night to all.